This world is plagued by chaos, harshness, and difficulty. Its unforgiving landscape hardened by sin like a barren rock lacks sympathy and love, leaving us feeling isolated, defeated, hopeless, and alone. Yet Christ has not called us out of the world, but sent us into it. Why is this? When we look closely, we can see his divine fingerprints, the very marks which allow us to look beyond the fleeting moments before us and through them to the vast expanse of eternity. It is here that we can joyfully acknowledge that every moment of our lives is significant and holds great purpose. A purpose to embody the life of Christ in every circumstance that a watching world may know Him. This is the life that shines like a light in the darkness. This is the book of Philippians. Good evening, everyone. Guys, it is Florida fall out today. Wasn't that so nice? Like, I'm wearing flannel. I didn't, like, need to wear flannel, but I, I did need to wear flannel. I felt really good about that decision. Um, guys, so we are continuing on tonight in the book of um, Philippians. Um, so if you received one of these over the last few weeks, these are the Philippian scripture journals. We still have some more that you can find out at the end of the gathering tonight. And in it is the entire book of Philippians, as well as some note space if you are a note-taking type of person. Now, last week, we talked about gospel partnership, this concept of co-laboring with one another with brothers and sisters in the family of God in a way that is rooted in deep care in truly knowing each other, that we are co-laborers with one another, that we are gospel partners with one another within the local church, but not just in this space, but we can be gospel partners with those in our family and in our um, roommate situation who also know and love Jesus, in our workplaces with those who know and love Jesus, that uh, in all of these spaces in our neighborhoods, we can look for those who are gospel partners, and we can see that there is beauty in these relationships. Um, and last week, we gave out these gospel partner cards, and um, in it, you could kind of fill in, who are these individuals in my life that are gospel partners? Because it's so easy to think that we are alone, or that we are isolated, or we are distant, or we are different from all the other. But the reality is, is for those of us who follow after Jesus, we are called to be in partnership with one another, that we are never truly alone, even when the enemy makes us feel that way, that the reality is, is that we have each other. And that's really good news. I know that's good news for me because sometimes I feel really lonely. So to know that I am not alone, that I can reach out to brothers and sisters in God and that we have partnership that's good news. So last week, that's what we talked about. And if, again, if you want one of these, you can pick them up on your way out as well. So we talked about identifying your gospel partners. Now, I do realize that one message may not be enough to uh, do the trick or whatever. That all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, this is a light bulb moment in my life. This is what I've been eating to know. And now this just changes the way I view everyone else in my life. 
I get that. I get that totally. But um, the reality is that for some of us, we, we have already kind of sensed this. And last week might have been like one of those, those watershed moments where it's like, oh, that's a great way to articulate that. That's helpful for me. And now then the question becomes for us, what do we do to build gospel partnerships? What do we do to care for gospel partnerships? What do we do to be both recipients and contributors to the concept of gospel partnership? I remember when I was nearing the end of my professional internship at Magic Kingdom and Guest Relations, I don't know, six years ago, seven years ago now, I forget, years blend together at this point. Um, but my professional internship in Guest Relations at Magic Kingdom was really rough. Um, we were on six days for six months, and we were working at least between eight to 12 hour shifts, typically closer to 10 to 12. And on top of that, I was in a residency for Mosaic at the same time. And I was burnt out. I was just so spent. Like I was uh, like, you could just see it by looking into my eyes that I was like a distant human being version of what I used to be. Uh, I was so spent and it felt like, felt like I had no capacity for really anyone. But what was hard about that was in the middle of this, God began to impress on my heart the need to build stronger relationships with other committed believers who worked with me at Magic Kingdom and Guest Relations. Now, that would have been wonderful if I was doing wonderful, but I wasn't doing wonderful. I didn't have a bunch of capacity to add on a new missionary project in my life. Like I was like, God, uh, can you like put this on somebody else's heart and they come and minister to me right about now? Like, I was like, I don't know what to do. I remember feeling exhausted, spent no additional time, no additional capacity to care. How could I create gospel partnerships when I had such very little left to offer? And the reality is I know that that's where some of you are tonight. I know what this season has been like. I know what it's like uh, I can hear what it's like for cast members right now in the parks and, and the difficulties that are being impressed on in one week, you're getting like 32 hours and the next week you're getting like 72 hours. And it's like, man, I really wish that there was some level of consistency to this puzzle. And it can be hard to even think of when everything just feels rough, how can I possibly invest in others? How can I possibly extend myself to others? Like, I am just in the valley of the shadow of death and it doesn't feel like it's alleviating anytime soon. And for those of you that are in that space, I get it. <laughs> I've been there. See, your desire to be missional in your workplace might be there. You see the need to form gospel partnerships, whether it's in your work location, your neighborhood, in your, um, in your housing situation, or even across the globe. But maybe you feel like, I just simply don't have it right now, whatever that it is for you right now, which is totally fair. When you are not, when you are feeling so alone, when you are feeling so drained, what do you do? And see, this is something that's so beautiful about where Paul's at in the book of Philippians as we continue on in Philippians chapter one in verse nine tonight. Now, last week, again, we discussed how for Paul, 
gospel partnership with his gospel partnership with the church in Philippi was so beautiful and so rich and so important, so valuable in his life. Their relationship was deep, rich, and filled with care. There is nothing about this letter that screams a begrudging letter was written, that screams, well, I know that I have to write this to you because you gave me some money, so now I have to do this thing. Like, no, this is oozing deep care, love, and compassion for them. So how could Paul offer this church anything, though, while he sits imprisoned? See, his called to gospel partnership, but his availability couldn't have been any more limited. As we talked about the last two weeks, there's no version of him being able to do the things that were his best work. He couldn't go and visit churches to encourage them in person. He couldn't give them fresh perspective. He couldn't analyze their situation of what was happening in their church. He couldn't disciple their leaders. He couldn't offer the care that, that Paul was so well equipped to offer. And this is why in verse eight, there's such beauty. Verse eight, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you, with the, for you all with the affection of Christ. Jesus. Do you see that? Let me read that again. And I want you to focus on like receiving this as like a text from a good friend, right? When you're like in the dumps, when you're struggling and somebody says something like this, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Can you imagine being in this church, receiving this letter, getting these words from Paul? Wouldn't that feel like a refreshing wave just to know his deep love, his deep care? This is not an isolated or distanced letter. This is a letter of much care. And he is saying, if I could teleport to be in your presence right now like that, I would do it. I love you. I yearn for you. So he's, he's talking about his desire for them. But now what could he practically offer? Well, what we're about to discover is he's going to offer both a concept and content. So the concept from a conceptual standpoint, what he is offering is this letter. This letter is his gift to this church. He can't offer everything. He can't offer his physical presence, but he can write them a letter. He can't encourage them. And then he also can offer up prayers to the king of the cosmos. And that matters to Paul. And that assumedly mattered to the church in Philippi. So from a conceptual standpoint, he could offer a letter. He could offer up prayers. Now, from a content perspective, this is where I want us to focus our energy on tonight. And so I believe we can learn so much from tonight is the content that he is praying for this church. Verses 9 through 11 And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What a beautiful desire. He's saying, I want you all to continue to grow in spiritual maturity. I want you to continue to learn to live and to love in light of the presence of God. I want you to grow in faithfulness in the midst of a world that is quite unfaithful. So now, tonight, what we're going to do is we're just going to break down these three short verses to learn 
how Paul prays, the content of his prayer. So verse nine is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So his prayer is that they would grow first and foremost in godly affections, love, love. His first desire, his biggest prayer for them is that they would grow in love, in love. What a beautiful prayer to be praying for another, that you would grow to love well. I don't know about you guys, but I don't always love well. In fact, I usually don't feel like I love very well. I was reading, um, I'm reading a book by C.S. Lewis right now called The Great Divorce, and in it, it's uh, about um, a number of passengers who have died and they are um, on their way to heaven. And it's the conversations that they're having on their way on this, this uh, metaphorical bus to heaven. And in it, one person was talking about love and love for their spouse. And they're like, but I'm not gonna have my spouse anymore in, in the kingdom. How does that work? And they're like, your love for your spouse has never actually been the full extent of what love is meant to be. In fact, it's only ever been at most in part. Real, that there's only one little part of the love that you express for your spouse that was ever the true kind of love. Because the true kind, because what we mean by love is I love you, meaning I want you to love me. <laughs> but godly love, godly affections is not self-serving. It is not self-seeking. It is not self-righteous. It is full, sacrificial, unconditional, and beautiful. And it's beyond my comprehension and yours, I'd imagine. Like, I'm imagining that all of us could say that we could grow to be able to love better, right? Think about that person you're mad at right now. Could you learn to love that person better? Probably, right? What about your parents or your close friends or your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend or whoever, could you learn to love that person better? Yeah. So like, this is a really good thing, but I don't know how many times I've ever actually asked another human being to pray that I would grow and the ability to love. Sounds like a good concept though, right? So it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Now, why is love so important? Why is it something that is repeated so often in the scriptures? Well, you might remember that this is a thing that we talk about decently amount from the stage here about love mattered a lot to Jesus. In fact, when he was approached by um, a young lawyer who said, what is the greatest of all of the law? I'm gonna ask for some audience participation right now. He said, it is love for God. God, yeah, yeah, okay, good. All right, love for, love for God and love for neighbor people, all good, right? So love for God and love for people. These are the defining markers of Jesus. And he says, this is the greatest of all the law. All other laws are contextualizations of that law. This is why we don't lie or cheat or steal or commit adultery. This is why we don't gossip or slander. This is why we aren't quarrelsome. This is why we don't give in to sexual immorality. This is why we fight in these fields. Because love, because love matters. Love is that big of a deal to Jesus. It is the defining marker of Jesus. Love for God and love for neighbor or love for people. 
See, Paul cared deeply about love. And we are so foolish when we dismiss affections and emotions because they matter a ton. They matter a ton to God. See, God cares deeply about love. In fact, it was the entire reason that Jesus was sent onto the planet. Remember? Like that whole John three sixteen bit, right? For God so Good job, y'all. All right. For God so loved the world. Not because for God so begrudged the world because God really had to because he owed humanity one. No, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God's affections, his emotions are stirred and they stir to action. They stir to sacrificial love. It doesn't stay as something that he goes, yeah, I love humanity as we are just tearing each other apart and he does nothing to be in the midst of it. No, in the midst of it, he said, love looks like me sending my own son to die a sacrificial death so that they could have a, so that they would have the ability to respond and to be entering into a kingdom of redemption. Love matters to God. See, he didn't send Jesus on the cross because he owed us one. He did it because of love. And this reminds me um, of two of the letters in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, Jesus writes seven letters to seven different churches in the ancient world. And one of them is to the church in Ephesus. And it's a, it's a super convicting letter. And I'll read just a portion from it. This is from Revelation 2, verses 2 through 4. And what you're going to see is that their need for regaining these emotions, these affections. He says, I know your works. I mean, first, imagine we get a letter as a church and it's addressed from Jesus, like specifically to us, like to the church of Orlando or to Mosaic at WDW. Like we're probably going to listen up if we get that letter and it's like fact check verified, right? So I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be a fault and found them to be false. So he's giving them credit. You guys are really good at figuring out where the fake stuff is. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. The church in Ephesus was experiencing high levels of persecution now at this point, but they've not grown weary but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Do we sit with that? You have abandoned the love that you had at first. So this is a church that has great gospel doctrine, right? They they can distinguish the good stuff versus the false stuff. They're really good at that. And Jesus isn't saying that's irrelevant. He's saying that's really good. But their culture of gospel love was not doing so hot right now. They needed their hearts recaptured by the love of the Father that they'd be able to rightly love God and love people. Now, personally, I need this prayer. And I, and I truly do pray this one often. God, would you recapture the affections of my heart? Because I am prone to wander. I don't abound in love all of the time. I need this prayer that my love would abound more and more, that my affections would be captivated toward Jesus. And then because of that, I would be able to rightly love my family, our local church, our community outside these walls and our world more and more. See, love matters more than we know. But 
there's a risk that we could also think that this is love unfiltered. But that's not what Paul's talking about either. Instead, what is he talking about? Let's go back to the verse, verse nine. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. With knowledge and all discernment. But love is rooted in knowledge and discernment. Now, these two words, knowledge and discernment, there is a slight difference between them. Knowledge is an understanding of transcendent truth. That's the kind of knowledge that he is referring to. Understanding of transcendent truth. Things that are always true regardless. So he wants them to know what is absolutely rock solid true. That their love would be rooted in what is absolutely true. But that they would also be rooted growing in the ability to discern. Now discernment is the ability to tell the difference between what is truly good and what is truly bad. Versus a counterfeit version where we define what is good and bad on our own terms. Have you ever um, believed something that was not true, but you didn't know it at the time, but you would like have defended it till the end? Has anybody resonate with that? I'll give you some examples, okay? Here's here's some of the things I was thinking about. When I was uh, a tour guide in Magic Kingdom Guest Relations, Keys of the Kingdom Tour, it was a semi-regular question about when you would take the guests in through the utilidor underneath Magic Kingdom, and and somebody would ask a question, they weren't joking, and they would say something like, "Um, so where is Walt cryogenically frozen? Or where is Walt buried at down here? And I was like, you're looking um, for a cemetery that's in LA on the other coast. You know, like he, he, and and he he was cremated actually and like spread. It's like in a garden now, you know. Um, But they were like so convinced that that was the truth because they read it on the internet. I mean, who would make stuff up on the internet, you know? Or how about this? Do you ever hear the... um, the urban legend that you swallow on average eight spiders a year while you are sleeping. Anybody heard of that? Am I about to set somebody free right now? That I researched this one. It's actually false. It is completely false. Praise Jesus. You're not swallowing. You're not swallowing um, spiders in your sleep. In fact, the only time if you are typically like you sleep with your mouth open, um, you're typically a snore and those vibrations apparently would um, actually ward off any spiders that may consider such emotion into your mouth. So that's good to know. All right. Or how about um, for anybody who watched Frozen for the first time, and then you're like four, the first four fifths of the movie, you swear that Hans is a pretty swell guy and should probably run for president, right? Discernment matters. Knowing what is true And what is not true, it matters. In fact, it matters so much that it's not just a good life skill to grow in, even though it is that, but it is actually listed as a gift that is given by the Holy Spirit, that we would be empowered to be able to discern what is truly good and truly bad and what is a counterfeit self-expression of those things. Why? Because we can so easily go off to finding good and bad on our own terms. That is the condition of the human experience. That is the desire of the human heart. It started in the garden. It continues up till today. And our desire, the best that we can hope for is that God would be reforming our understanding. He would be giving us his ability to discern because guys, I think I'm really good at discerning stuff, but not always. And when I'm proved wrong, God just reveals something to me. I'm just like, oh man, I was deceived. And that's true for all of us. So we need to be 
abounding more and more in love, rooted in knowledge and discernment. Now, this part reminds me of a a different church that was written to by Jesus in the book of Revelation. The church is called Thyatira. And here's what Jesus writes to them. I know your works, your love and your faith and servants and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. In other words, you guys are rocking it on the love front. Like the way that you guys are loving people is just wonderful. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, there's so much about that last part that we could get into. Um, We're really not going to very deeply other than to understand that what they have been allowing to happen is they have kind of punted the concept of discernment because of love. And that's not great either. They need to still be able to, to know, God, what, how do you interpret what's happening here? What is good and bad on your terms, not on mine? And that they would have that spirit of discernment. But this is a difficult reality, right? They had a really caring culture, but they began to permit all kinds of brokenness in their midst. They were not rooted in knowledge and discernment. Now, these are two major temptations for us, right? Don't we tend to probably lean on one side or the other? We, we are the type of person that typically wants all grace or the kind of person that typically wants all truth. We kind of see it like it's a teeter-totter. But in Jesus, we find the one who is not either or, or sometimes one, sometimes the other. He is filled with, as it says in the book of Matthew, filled with grace and truth. It's not 50-50 with Jesus. It's 100% of both. Because without one, you don't truly have the other. See, these are the defining markers of spiritual maturity. The ability to live in deep love and in deep ability to have knowledge and discernment. They're tied and intricately connected together. I don't have it figured out. But day by day, by the grace of God, the spirit of God is continuing to do a work in me. And I'm thankful for that but I can't pretend that that any of us will ever have it completely figured out. Hence our radical dependence on Jesus. So it's abounding more and more in love while being rooted in knowledge and discernment. This is a part of his prayer, but he goes on in verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So what is Paul hoping for as they grow in spiritual maturity? that they would be ready to come face to face with Jesus one day. See, for those of us who follow Jesus and believe that one day we will see him face to face, I think that, I believe that we don't ponder this moment nearly enough. What will that moment be like when we encounter Jesus face to face for the first time? So you might think that we would just run up to him and like give him a high five, like it's a meet and greet with Mickey. But every single time someone seems to encounter the unfiltered presence of God in the heavenly kingdom, that is not what takes place. Instead, there is this deep humbling and lowering of self, of the great holiness, of a set apartness, of his wonderment and our meekness. Our smallness. See, this is, the one, this is the one through whom all things were created. 
I'd be amazed um, to one day meet the person who invented the pumpkin spice latte for Starbucks, y'all. Like if I met that person, I'd be like, thank you. You know, like I'd be like a little starstruck in finding, I don't know who this person is, so I don't know how to ever figure this out about said person, um, unless they walk around with a t-shirt saying exactly that. But like, that would be pretty cool for me because I appreciate creative people, like the guy or girl who created the pumpkin spice latte. But if that's how I feel about that, how much greater should we have awe of the one who owns the stars in the sky? See, this is the one who conquered death and took my sin and shame on himself so that we could be adopted into his family. What would that moment be like? Can you imagine? I mean, think about it, really. Like, think about it. The conquering king, you are approaching him. And as you approach the throne of King Jesus, what will that moment be like? When I've typically thought of this moment, it's typically connected when somebody in my family or friend circle um, passes away. You know, it's like that moment when somebody dies and then you're like, whoa, like there's a weight to life. Like this is not all there is. And then you like go through that existential thought process, which I think is, is really good and healthy for us. Um, I especially remember this five years ago, um, almost five years ago now when my dad passed away. I remember thinking over his life and imagining what it must have been like that first moment when he walked into the presence of Jesus. And I wasn't like trying to make myself feel better by thinking of him in the great by and by or something like that. I was just pondering what that moment was like for him. So my dad, my dad was really cool. My dad was a really good dad. But his relationship with Jesus really came alive in the last couple years of his life. It was really cool to watch. And over those last few years of his life, he began to abound more and more in love, rooted in knowledge and discernment. Like really, that was my dad's story. And it was really cool to watch the way he began to disciple me, the way that he was an encouragement for my life where he wasn't before. See, I wish my dad would have stuck around longer But I'm also so thankful for the spiritual maturing that God allowed him to go through in the last few years of his life. It allows me to now wonder about what that meet and greet was like with Jesus. See, here's what I know about my dad. He wasn't like aching to die. He wasn't like looking forward to that moment, but he had been preparing and prepared to meet Jesus at any moment. He was ready for whenever that moment happened, even though he wasn't trying to make it happen. See, it was evident just by being near him, seeing what God was doing in his heart and his mind. Now, here's why I mentioned that. The early church was known for this, that they constantly thought of the return of Jesus, always. It's like they thought it was gonna happen like on Tuesday around like 3.30, right? Like the way we predict the rain, that was like, they're like, and we're just gonna see what happens. Like we're gonna see, is Jesus gonna come soon? If he's not, then great, we have more work to do. But if he is, then sweet, we're in his presence. Like that was their mentality. And we can get so trivialized with the comforts of this world, me included, that we forget to have our minds enraptured by what is to come, the true life, the true world, the true earth that is to come. All of this is the shadow. This isn't the real thing, but this is all we've ever known. But you see in Paul, verse 10 again, what does he say? So that you may approve what is excellent, so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, in light of the day of Christ, in light of the fact that one day you will stand in the presence of Jesus, 
be transformed. This is my prayer for you. See, Paul's hope is that this moment would would perplex their lives, would enrapture their lives, that this church would live as if every moment was simply a dress rehearsal for that moment. They, as they grew in spiritual maturity, that they would become examples of everything that is truly excellent, marked by purity, faithfulness. That's why we grow. That's why we are still here on planet Earth so that we could be transformed more and more for that moment, so that in this moment, we would discover more of his love for that moment. Now, when you're like driving to work on property, this is probably not what you are thinking of on your drive down World Drive, right? What does come to your mind? Maybe you're wondering about, is everything in my life building up to Whatever, maybe it's a, a promotion or this, this new relationship you might be in or is it, um, maybe it's kids or maybe it's like a big break in your, whatever your professional field is. Like none of those are bad things. Those all sound wonderful. But is eternity on our mind? Are we captivated by the things that captivated Paul and more importantly, that captivated Jesus? Jesus spent a lot of time talking about the kingdom. We don't. See, Paul's prayer for this church is that eternity would be the reality beckoning them forward, calling them further up and further in, which takes us to verse 11, where we'll finish out tonight, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. See, Paul finishes off this prayer talking about the kind of fruit that he hopes to see evident in the lives of these believers, the fruit of righteousness. Now, just in case that anyone would think that this means that it's back on us and we need to figure it out and we need to be better, we need to produce this fruit on our own, what does he say? He says, that comes through who? Jesus Christ. I know we talk a lot about this other passage a lot, but where Jesus is talking about abiding in him, he says, abide in me because apart from me, you can do nothing. nothing. Great, great job, guys. Nothing. We can do nothing apart from Jesus. See, you aren't talented enough to impress God. No offense. I'm sure you all are super talented in some wonderful ways, but not enough to impress God. You can't earn his love or affection. You don't earn his favor. But it is through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross that we have hope. And in that we can abide in him. We can draw near to him that we can bear much fruit. So this is the hyperlink that Paul is talking about when he says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This is our beautiful call. Now, our spiritual tem- our temptation is try to either spiritually earn things from God or to kind of coast it out and be spiritually lazy. Now, both of those are really not great options, but what we need is to spiritually abide draw near to Jesus and allow his rest to become our rest, to allow him to do his work through us. Living in such a way that that that, that moment, the day of Christ, that moment would captivate us today. I pray that this would be our mindset, that we would live in light of eternity and see what God can do in us and through us. Now, just in case we are tempted to think that, um, that, we, that, that like we are the ultimate goal out of all of this, 
All right, so Paul just gave out a prayer that they would think that they're really awesome. Remember the end of verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. See, it's not about our glory, it's about his. But again, that's why we were actually created beings. What does it say? The Westminster Catechism says it this way, that we were created to delight in God, to glorify God, and to enjoy him forever. That's why you and I were created, to glorify him, that we are most fulfilled when we are glorifying him, that we are most loved when we are loving him, that we are most joy-filled when we are engaging in joy in him. But I get it that all the trappings of this world pull us back, not us back, make us feel like this is it. But it's to the glory and praise of God that we do this. So this was a message about how we pray with gospel partners. Now, we just spent a lot of time talking about spiritual maturity. So what's the connection? Well, you see, these are all the pieces that Paul is praying over them, that these would be the ways that they would grow, and these are the ways that he is praying for them, that they would be, as he puts it, that they would grow in love more and more, that they would be rooted in knowledge and discernment, that they would be able to approve what is excellent, that they would be known for purity and blamelessness, faithfulness, living in light of the gospel, living in light of the day of Christ to come, filled with spiritual fruit that comes in abiding with Jesus. This is what he is praying for them. Now, I bring that up because if you hear of a coworker with cancer, if you find a friend, find out a friend just got, um, got laid off. If you hear a story of a Christian suffering and persecution, if you hear something that's really awesome, what do we typically tend to pray for? Circumstances, right? The alleviation or the healing of a disease um, or a healing in whatever way, whether it's in the job situation um, or an alleviation from persecution. And I'm not criticizing any of that. Those are all appropriate and good things. And we have the ear of God to talk to him about those things. But typically, if you're anything like me, you typically leave your prayer life at the point of circumstances. You pray for things to change, the circumstances around that person to change, that their relationship would improve, that their situation at work would get better, that the healing would happen. And again, all of those are good, but what we typically need most in prayer is not just about the alleviation of circumstance, but that God would be forming us and not wasting the moment in the midst of circumstance. And that's what Paul's getting at here. This is the way Paul usually spends most of his time praying, that regardless of their circumstances, they, that God would be doing a mighty work in them and through them. And in the middle of the difficulty, God would be doing something that he could not do on his own. And this is the type of prayer that I need. This is the type of prayer that you need. I'm imagining in a room, even at this size, there are some difficult circumstances and we should be praying and can pray and do pray with you in the middle of the circumstances. But more than just praying for the circumstances, are we also taking time to pray for what God is doing in you in the midst of the circumstance? And see, this is what we have the opportunity to do as gospel partners. You are in a room filled with gospel partners. You are surrounded by them now. So here's what we're gonna do tonight. 
as we close, the first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna enter into a time of corporate prayer. So what that means is we're gonna have a prayer that's gonna be up here. And what I would love for you to do is if you are a follower of Jesus, I would love for you to pray this prayer out loud with all of us together. It might get a little loud. It might, we might mix up words a little bit, but that's okay. It's literally the prayer is taking this verse and praying it over one another. So I want you to visualize that and think about that as we pray this prayer, all right? So let's look up here and we'll pray together. I wanna make sure I'm not in the way of anyone. All right, so I'll start us off and just kind of jump in with me, all right? So Father, I pray for my gospel partners that their love would flourish and that they would not only love much, but love well. God, help them to understand what really matters in this life so that when Christ returns, they may be found pure and holy. May they bear the beautiful fruit that he is graciously cultivating within their souls to the people around them, getting everyone involved in the glory and praise of God. Amen. I'm gonna go ahead and invite the band to come on up right now. As the band comes up, I was thinking about um, what had happened when I was in guest relations and I had felt like I had no capacity. I began to pray with a couple of my coworkers who were Christians. I didn't have a lot of capacity, but I could do that much during break times. And in that space, we had some incredible conversations. And one of my friends in particular, she began doing something so beautiful and wonderful and simple. On her breaks, she began to circle City Hall in Magic Kingdom and just prayer walk it over and over and over again. Praying for guests, praying for cast members, praying for believers to make the gospel beautiful and known through our connection to one another. And it was really cool to see what ended up happening. So guys, I don't think that prayer gets nearly enough light from us, that we think of it as a good alternative or a, a good second thing to do. But guys, in the midst of prayer, we can bend the ear of the king of the cosmos. So my challenge for all of you who have filled out one of these gospel partner notes, I would encourage you to reach out to each of these individuals over the coming weeks. Ask them, how can I be praying with you? What's going on? Where are you at? And genuinely praying with them, putting a reminder on your iPhone or whatever. Pray with them and for them. Don't miss out on the opportunity that we have to talk to the creator of the cosmos. So now we're gonna finish this way. I'm going to now read and pray the same prayer over all of you as a blessing. So I pray that you would receive this blessing. This is my prayer for you, that your love would flourish. Father, do this, that you would not only love much, but love well. God, make this real. May God help you to understand what really matters in this life so that when Christ returns, you may be found pure and holy. Lord, this cannot happen apart from you. May you bear the beautiful fruit that he is graciously cultivating within your soul to the people around you, getting everyone involved in the glory and praise of God. Father, would you do this work in your people? 
Give us hearts of worship tonight as we respond to your good news, to your word. Amen.